Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. I have a little bit of follow-up from last episode, episode 11, when we were talking about pens. In the after-hours section, you had made a comment about, uh, do I print off my papers or do I start writing my papers from scratch? And I said I don't, and then you asked if I if I print them off at least and mark them up with a you know, bright red ink. And while I don't do that with my papers, I do do that with a lot of my designs. I I often end up printing off my drawings for work that I'm doing in the shop. And I found the perfect ink for doing that a few years ago. There's a Dutch company uh, that make ink, the Ackerman Ink Company. They have these wonderful bottle designs. Uh, check if, if no other reason, check out the bottles that they uh, they design. They have these uh, these little glass balls that they put in the neck of the bottle that allows you to fill up a reservoir effectively at the top of the bottle with ink. You know, one of the challenges with a lot of bottles of ink is is getting to the last bit of the ink where you you have to sort of get your your nib down or your your converter down into the end of it and uh, and get it filled up. But they've they've solved that problem with uh, with this beautiful bottle design. Anyway, one of the uh, they have they have a beautiful collection of ink. I think there's 30 or 40 different inks that they produce and they're, they're quite nice. But one of the ones that they produce is Ackerman number 21, which is Chinatown red. And it may be the brightest red ink I have ever found for a fountain pen. It's wonderful to work with. It is very, very bright. And so I will often use it in the shop with a very fine nib uh, so it's a beyond an extra fine nib that uh, that Mike Masayama ground down for me, and I will mark up drawings with notes or with changes that I make to a design as I'm working on it. That's what I tend to use when I'm in the shop and I'm I'm marking up my drawings. If you're looking for a, maybe you're a school teacher or you're you're just looking for a, a an ink to make a statement with, I highly recommend the Ackerman Chinatown Red. It is a beautiful, vibrant red. I'd also like to thank the people who contacted us and talked a little bit about pens, their favorite pens, their inks that they used. Uh, I heard from a number of people after the episode, uh, people talking about their pens. So it was nice to hear the feedback that uh, that we got from from people. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we get a little bit more in the future. If you've got good pens that you like, if you've got questions about pens, let us know. It's uh, I'm sure it's a topic that we will come back to in the future. Yeah, so it's quite surprised to hear given how extensively you use fountain pens and craft fountain pens that you actually prefer using an apple pencil when you're working on the longer pieces of, of writing like your upcoming talk at the santa fe symposium yeah i think the the preference to using a digital input device like that isn't necessarily because of the input device and more because of the digital nature of the document that I'm working on. So I tend to work back and forth between a MacBook Pro, an iPad Pro, and my phone a lot. And I may be working on those three devices in entirely different places. It might be that I'm working on it in, you know, simply between my office and one sense. Uh, upstairs or going down to the living room and sitting in front of the fireplace and working on the, you know, working in a chair down there. Or I may be out of the house and I may be sitting in a restaurant and want to work on something. Uh, so for me, the digital nature of documents tends to supersede my preference to use something like a pen when I'm working. And it's, it's purely the convenience of being able to work on a document, have it saved and updated up in the cloud, be able to pick it up somewhere else, and be able to continue working on it. So I, th I think that's, that's the reason why I tend to do it as often as I do. I don't mind the Apple Pencil, but the, it certainly has its problems. And I think it's probably the best of the digital input devices I've found, but it, it certainly has its problems. And I think that's something we wanted to talk a little bit about because I, I think you have you have an Apple Pencil as well that you use with an iPad, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, was, I would say just reflecting back that it was probably one of the, 
Apple products I was most excited about when it was first announced a few years ago. Mm-hmm. In in recent memory, it's one of the products that's got most excited. But in actuality, I haven't used it nearly as extensively as I I'd imagine I would. I don't know if that's just a dissonance between my how I, I perceive I want myself to be in terms of, of drawing and sketching much more than I actually am able to, to carve out the time to do, or whether the software just hasn't gripped me in, in quite the the way that I, I had had hoped it would. I mean, there are some great apps and, and certainly some things that I really uh, enjoy using the Apple Pencil for. I mean, thinking hard about it, I, I probably haven't used the Apple Pencil more than than 20 times in, in the amount of time that I've I've owned it, which is sad, really, because I, I thought I would use it far more extensively than I than I have. Yeah, I have to agree in terms of the uh, my excitement with the device. And now, I, one of the things that I've loved against I've loved about the iPad since it the first one was released, and I've had you know I've had iPads since they were first released. I like the intimate nature of it as a computing device. It's a large screen, so you can. You know, you get a great view of images, you get a great view of web pages, much larger than, you know, your phone screen. But you also get the immediate control and feedback of a touch device, which is great. And I I certainly enjoy it a lot as a touch device uh, with my hands. And I think for most of the interface, it is the way to go. But having the accurate input of a properly designed pencil is great. One of my early frustrations with the iPad was how inaccurate all of the styluses on the market were. Mm-hmm. Even the best of them were not very good. And that was a limitation of the of the iPad hardware. They it just couldn't resolve the touch of a of a fine a fine device like that, a fine stylus. So I was very excited when the pencil was announced and you know, you get a fine tip, you get pressure sensitivity, you even get the ability to distinguish between holding the pencil straight up and down versus on its side, you know, sort of ru- almost like rubbing a pencil on the side. So I was a big fan of, of that when, it, when they announced it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of developers have been unable to really realize the potential of it as a, as a device, as an input device. And I don't know if that's because they're just not interested in developing for the iPad or because they're just not really keen to to develop for that particular input device. There's certainly a lot of apps that could be out there, could be excellent apps um, that just aren't aren't in existence because developers haven't worked on them yet. Now, how do you find writing with the Apple Pencil compared to, say, I mean, I know you switched to using a fountain pen for RSI issues back in the day. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you find it compares to, say, using a, a ballpoint pen? Are you able to use it continuously because you don't have to apply so much pressure more akin to, to a fountain pen? Or do you find it more similar to, to something like a, a ballpoint pen or a, a, an actual pencil, maybe? I find it probably closest to a pencil. It's, it's better than a rollerball or a ballpoint. You don't need to apply as much pressure as you do there, but you certainly do need to apply more pressure with it than you do with a, a, a proper pen. Uh, so I don't need to apply as much pressure with my fountain pens as I do with the the Apple Pencil. So it's sort of somewhere in between. My problems with it from a usability point of view have less to do with the amount of pressure you need to apply and more to do with the shape and form of the pencil itself. My hands are large enough that I find the diameter of the Apple Pencil to be awkward. I find it too small. I believe the size is very similar to uh, the classic yellow Tinkonderoga school pencil that everybody used when they were a kid. And I find, as an adult, that pencil size, that, that diameter, is very awkward. It's, it's too small for my hand to be comfortable with. So that's that's my my biggest problem with it. In fact, it, it's so much of a problem that I purchased a silicon sleeve to go over my Apple Pencil to make it larger in diameter. The pencil by itself is around 325 thou in diameter. So it's about three-eighths of an inch in diameter. With this sleeve that I'm using, it's very nearly a half inch in diameter. This sleeve is adding a significant amount of size to the barrel of the pencil. 
And I found that's made a significant difference in my ability to write with it and use it for long periods of time. Uh, just that extra that extra diameter that it has. The other thing that this does is it goes from being a perfectly smooth white surface uh, that has no texture, no change in shape other than being a straight cylinder. And it adds a little bit more texture to it, a little bit more grip, and it actually has small ridges on it. It's a little bit easier to grab onto. My pencil became significantly more usable to me when I when I added the silicon sleeve to it. And it solved a lot of the problems that I had. Now, of course, it's not as elegant as the original design. I do love the original design as a as a piece of industrial design. I, I think it looks it looks beautiful and it certainly matches Apple's design aesthetic that they've chosen to go with. I, I do like it from that point of view, but as an object that I have to use every day, the usability of it supersedes the look of it. And I think that it fails a bit in a design sense because it is not as usable as it could be if they had made a few different design decisions when they were when they were creating it. How about you, Dave? Is, is the reason that you are not using it primarily because of the feel of the pencil and the ergonomics of it? Or is it because of the lack of software that's doing what you want it to do? I would say neither. I w- it's really more just prioritizing whether intentionally or, or unintentionally investing my time in doing other things than than drawing or sketching on the iPad. Uh, I would say that's that's where the real issue lies. Now, part of that is dictated somewhat by not having been gripped by any particular piece of software that I really want to dive in and draw with. You were talking about earlier styluses that basically just replicated a mushy finger on the screen. And I, I did have a Pogo for a few years, and I used the paper app quite a bit. Um, and I did enjoy uh, the experience uh, of working with that. And I would say I probably use the Pogo more than I, I've used the Apple Pencil. Uh, and part of that maybe is the fact that paper by 53 has changed in ways that pushed me away from, from using the app. Uh, I use Procreate for the most part uh, with the Apple Pencil, but it's maybe I'm, I'm almost paralyzed by a paradox of choice when I dive into that app. And actually, no, I, I'm going to correct myself. The app I probably use the most is the built-in notes app when I'm using the Apple Pencil because uh, I find the that they really did a nice job, uh, Apple, uh, in designing the notes app for use with, with the Apple Pencil. And that's probably where I, I use it the most. But when I'm, I'm going to do something more artistic with it, it would be in, in Procreate. How about you? What apps uh, do you find you using? Procreate is certainly the one that I like the most from a sketching point of view, but I find myself not doing any serious sketching. I, I'm not really not really much of an artist when it comes to drawing and sketching, so I have less use of it as a as sort of a replacement for a, a sketching notebook like that. Uh, I tend to be doing very basic sketches where I don't need the features of something like Procreate. I don't need multiple layers necessarily. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to have a, an extensive selection of brushes. And so I I've tend to avoid that. I would say the two apps that I use the most with with a pencil is, the again, the built-in notes app. Although I've been frustrated with the updates they made to iOS 11 with it. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But the other app that I use a lot with my pencil is Affinity Photo Editor. And this is where the the iPad and the pencil have probably changed the way I work the most. I used to do nearly all my photo editing on a Mac in Photoshop. And I have now switched almost entirely to doing photo editing on my iPad in Affinity Photo. So my photography tends to be a little bit of travel photography and a lot of product photography. And so I'm doing things like focus stacking, where you're taking multiple images at different focal points of the subject, and then stacking them together, and you only take the the bits that are in focus and include them into the in the image. So it allows you to take something like a pen that you could never include the entire pen in the depth of field of a lens. It's just not possible at a at sort of the macro shots that I'm taking, and I can stack. 30, 40, 100 photos, however many, however many I need, and get the entire pen in in focus. 
when I started doing that a, a number of years ago with my product photography, it made a significant difference in in the look of my images. And I was doing that in Photoshop. And something like Affinity Photo on the iPad can do focus stacking in there. And I find it far more pleasurable to be working on my iPad with an Apple Pencil than I do on uh, on a Mac with touchpad or a um, or a mouse even so that that's probably been the place where the pencil has changed the way i work the most and i i look at something like that and i look at the workflow it's not a perfect workflow but it's it's a really good workflow for me and it shows me the potential of using the ipad as a device for creating content with a with a pencil and I'm frustrated that we don't have things like good 3D modeling software on the iPad. All right, something like I use I use two 3D modeling tools primarily, Rhino 3D and uh, Fusion 360. Now, Rhino, I don't know, I don't know if there would ever be enough demand for Rhino on the iPad for them to justify it. They're a relatively small company, and even the Mac version that they have, I think they've got one developer on it who you know, who doesn't even spend his full time developing that product. So I would be surprised if we ever saw an, an iPad version of Rhino. But something like Fusion 360, Autodesk has the resources to be able to do a good iPad app. And I believe they've got an, uh, the version of AutoCAD they have for iPad is actually quite good. And that's the kind of thing where I would love to see a good 3D modeling app like Fusion 360 available on the iPad with good pencil support. And I think that that could turn, you know, that could turn a, a product like like CAD into an amazing experience on a on a tablet device. Hmm. Yeah, I would second the praise for Affinity Photo. It's a very impressive app. Uh, for a long time, I was using Pixelmator primarily on the iPad. Affinity Photo has has supplanted that for me. No, I'm really impressed with it. Pixelmator is an excellent app, and I've used the Mac app as well. Uh, they're both they're both quite good. But when you look at Affinity, it has everything that I need to do in the photo editing world. And it, it just is so much so much more pleasant to work on than working on a Mac version. Uh, I can touch the image and, and do work quite quickly on it. And with the new CPUs and GPUs in, these, in the iPad Pro, it can easily handle doing complex focus stacks. I'm shooting with a Nikon D810, uh, which is a 34. Four megapixel camera, I believe, and those those images are quite large. The raw images are, you know, they're fifty sixty megabytes a piece. If I'm focus stacking dozens of them together, it's a fair bit of fair bit of work for on the GPU and the CPU to to get all that working. And my iPad doesn't doesn't complain about it. In fact, it does a better job than my significantly more expensive MacBook Pro when it comes on working on on large objects like or large images like that. Affinity Photo makes focus stacking brilliantly simple, far easier to do it in Affinity on on an iPad than it is to do it in, in Photoshop on a, a desktop even. It's almost as if Photoshop's hamstrung by its legacy and the way that it handles focus stacking. That's yeah. such a, a really pleasurable experience to, to do it in Affinity versus Photoshop. I was a bit surprised to see it as a feature in Affinity because even though I use it a lot and, and I know a lot of other product photographers use it a lot, it's certainly not a feature that a lot of people would would ever think about using as a photographer. So it was surprising that it was in there, but I'm really glad that it is because it's it's one of the primary reasons that I got it. Now, when it comes to the Notes app, when Notes in iOS 10 came out, with the introduction of the iPad Pro and the introduction of the Apple Pencil, I absolutely loved it. I was doing nearly 100% because Affinity Photo wasn't out at that point. And Procreate was and had good Apple Pencil support early on. But honestly, the the Notes app and the drawing utility in it, I absolutely loved using it. And I was using it constantly. Uh, the ability to add you know, good sketches into my notes was extremely useful. I was frustrated with iOS 11 because they've taken away some of the functionality of notes and they've they've sort of dumbed it down a little bit in ways that I, I don't understand why they did. I don't understand if it was a rewrite 
and they didn't get around to adding some of those features in or if they took those features out because they don't intend to add them back in again. One of the biggest features that I miss is the ruler that was in the iOS 10 version of Notes. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure how many people used it or even realized it was there. Yeah, you could turn it on so that it was always on. But if you held two fingers down on the screen, it would it would automatically draw a ruler between your two hand, your two fingers. You could then adjust the angle of it and it would tell you the exact angle that it was at. And you could lock it in certain angles if you wanted to, 45 degrees or whatever. And then as you draw with a pencil, it will draw along that and give you a perfectly straight line. The other thing you could do with it, and I, I don't think a lot of people know about this, you could use the eraser using the ruler. So you could use the ruler to mask out where you were erasing. Uh, it's sort of like using an eraser shield. Uh, a lot of draftsmen use eraser shields or use, used to use eraser shields so that you would only take out the little bit that you needed without affecting the rest of the drawing. They were just thin metal shields that you could use. And so I was using the the ruler to constantly and the eraser to constantly refine the drawings that I was making with the pencil tool and it would allow me to quickly, you know, quickly draw straight lines that were the right angle and then refine where things were. I, I love that feature. And unfortunately, they've removed it from this version. And I, I really hope that they add it back in because it was so incredibly powerful. And I haven't seen anybody who has taken that design idea and picked it up and put it into their drawing tool, which is too bad. I have some good news for you, Chris, because I, I hadn't noticed it missing so i've just opened up the the notes app here conveniently and uh i am running ios 11 and it is still available what you may find you need to do i think is just hit the little plus button and add a new sketch so sketching directly into a note which is something i believe was added in ios 11 whereas in ios 10 you had to hit the plus button to add a sketch uh, if you Hit the plus button to add a sketch. You still have the the ruler capability in there. Ah, that's see. Thank you, John. I did You're not realize welcome. that that was still in there. Look at that. Oh, and it even so. My other complaint about the uh, the version eleven of the iOS uh, Notes app was the the fine tipped pen that you have was is a much larger pen. It, it the the line that you get out of the older version is a much finer tip and the the new one was more like writing with a with a marker versus writing with a, a fine tip pen that's something else that's uh, that's a bit different so okay well that's that's good to know that it's still there it's unfortunate that you can't use these features with the version where you just start writing straight into the note because that is nice to have you probably can't do that with photos as well because that's the other thing i use a lot when i'm uh, I'm in notes, is I'll insert a, a photo into the note and then I will sketch over top of it and make notes on it and, and make design changes and stuff like that to photos. So, but that's, I'm, I'm happy to, that you, uh, that you pointed that out because that's something I've missed desperately since, uh, since iOS 11 came out. One of the things that, that first drew me to watchmaking was the idea that it's possible for an object, even a machine as complex as a mechanical watch to have enduring value and utility. Um, there aren't many objects that tend to outlive their original owners in the way that mechanical timepieces so often do. Uh, but I'm convinced it's it's possible to design things with longevity in mind. And not just that is possible, but that's it's something that we as a, a species should be making a, a point of being more thoughtful about and, and doing much more of than we we currently do. And one thing that bothers me a little bit with the, the Apple Pencil is that once the battery's shot, what you have is effectively, as you might say, a stick. Uh, it's really not not good for anything after that. And uh, to to paraphrase George Daniels, every battery from the moment it leaves the factory uh, is on a, a single-minded mission to commit suicide. And 
the Apple Pencil on uh, on iFixit has effectively the lowest score that you, you can get for repairability. It's a 1 out of 10. And I, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the, the season finale of Welcome to Macintosh, but there's a really great interview with Kyle Weens, who founded iFixit, and Mark Bramhill, who does a phenomenal job producing the Welcome to Macintosh podcast, really viscerally communicated for me just how irreparable the Apple Pencil is. You get this audio of, of the guys at iFix actually having to pull out this rotary tool, and, and you can hear the sound of them cutting through the outer layer of the Apple Pencil down and try to avoid cutting into the metal that's hiding just underneath it. I think it's effectively, it's all summed up well in the, the title of the, the podcast, which is essentially, if it's broke, don't fix it. I, I think that that particular episode does a really good job of, of digging into the fact that objects don't have to be designed this way, that it's a, a choice to some extent. I get that when you're aiming for thinness and whatnot, there are some trade-offs that have to be made, but I mean, the introduction of pentalobe screws on the, the iPhone 5 was not absolutely necessary. Uh, it would be a, a far more repairable product if done differently, and it would, to my mind, it, it's feasible to have designed the Apple Pencil to have a replaceable battery, but that affordance simply wasn't made. I've, I'm of two different minds about this because I look at this as a designer and I look at this as a consumer and those two parts of my brain are constantly clashing when I look at these products, particularly, obviously, Apple products are the ones that we're going to talk about because they are the probably the most popular in terms of advanced industrial design today. If this was 30 years ago, we'd probably be talking about uh, brawn products. Today, it's the Apple products and the design choices that are made and the compromises that are made, I think, from one sense, are excellent and they are what gets us the advanced products that we have. And in another sense, are, as you say, they're causing problems with, with the repairability of and the long the long-term life of these products. And that's a constant fight between the two. So I agree with you. It's, it is frustrating. These devices are not repairable. The pieces that I make, anyone who maintains these pens or doesn't even maintain these pens, you could put it in a drawer for 500 years. Any competent maker 500 years from today could take any of my pens and quite easily bring them back up to serviceability. All you need to make sure is that the, the nib and the feed function well. You don't even need the cartridge converter that's in it, to be quite honest. I've used them as eyedrop fillers where you put a little bit of silicon grease on the threads of the section, you fill up the barrel of the pen with ink, and you start writing with it. And it will work perfectly fine like that. So really all you need is is the barrel intact and, and the, the nib and feed functioning. And in fact, you could even manufacture a new nib and feed if you, if you wanted to. You know, it's not beyond the realm of, of a competent maker to, to do that. I understand the the pleasure and the uh, you know of making something that is going to outlive me and is going to outlive the person who buys it today. So that's part of why I make things and part of the reason why I make the things that I do is that they can outlive me. Having said that, one of the advantages of the design choices that are being made, for instance, not having a repairable uh, battery or a replaceable battery that allows the battery to be shaped in a way that increases the size of it uh, or allows it to take up a smaller amount of space. So you have the choice of either increasing capacity or or shrinking the product to, to make it more usable because you're not dealing with adding a shell to the outside of it. The the perfect comparison is if you an old you know battery from let's say an old uh, BlackBerry phone or a battery from a from an older laptop where you could remove these batteries from them, and they're so incredibly inefficient from a space point of view to to put into the device because you have to have the shell around the battery that's sort of a nice consumer friendly shell. It has to fit into a space in the device 
which then takes up more room. You have to have the connectors that are that are connecting to it. You have to allow for a door to get access to this battery. And all of a sudden, you no longer have a... You either have to shrink the battery to a point where it's almost unusable, or you have to make the device larger to make the battery a usable size. One of the reasons we can have the nice thin light laptops that we do or the nice thin light phones that we do and still get the battery life out of them considering the processor performance that we have and the the screens that they're driving is because those batteries are filling every single spare void in the device. And you can't do that if you're making a removable battery. It's a constant struggle whenever you're designing anything. There are always compromises that you need to make. And I can't blame Johnny Ive and the Apple design team for the the design choices they've made in those compromises because the Apple Pencil, I don't know if it's possible to do as well as it's done with a removable battery. Obviously, we don't know. They've they've probably designed some that, that do have removable batteries, and we'll never know what those look like or or how well they function. But I'm not sure that you can do it as well or have the battery life that it has if you make a removable battery for it. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. But in the case of the the Apple Pencil, I would beg to differ a little bit. don't think it necessarily has to be dead simple to replace the battery like it would be in, say, a Nokia phone or a BlackBerry. A very simple thing that they they could have done is, because there's already a, a sleeve over the pencil. It already has a, a housing or a shell around it, if you will. If it were threaded in any way so that, like, let's say the, the lighting port, if you were to, to turn that metal ring and then be able to unthread it and, and pull the, the inner robotic core, if you will, out of the, the outer sheath. There's just one screw that's holding in the, the battery and antenna assembly. And if you were able to just, instead of having to literally cut through the shell to get at it, if you're able to just unscrew it and slide that out, undo that one screw and drop in a brand new battery and antenna assembly, all of a sudden your repairability score on this from something like iFix is going to shoot up to an 8 or a 9, maybe even a, a 10. And part of designing something to last is deeply considering during the design stage the ways to optimize the service or repair of a product in order to extend its useful life. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this tends to be at odds with what shareholders want or, or what powers that be may want in terms of boosting profitability and, and margins and selling more product. But it's also why brands who aren't beholden to shareholders, brands like Rolex that's owned by a charity or, or Leica, where more than 50% of the company is, is owned by a, a single entity. It's why brands like that who can invest resources in building products that endure and that can be serviced tend to have such strong followings. I'm not sure that that's entirely fair. In the case of somebody like Apple, Apple has made it very clear that they really don't care what their shareholders think in terms of driving profitability or driving design choices in their in their devices. They have actively railed against bringing out devices on faster upgrade cycle, for instance. The Apple Pencil right now is pushing, I guess it's, what, 18 months old? Maybe a little bit more than that? When did the first one? I guess it's, yeah, it's at least 18 months old at this point. And I I find it difficult to believe that a company that was driven that heavily by shareholders wouldn't have already come out with a a version two at the the one-year anniversary of it. So I I don't know that that's entirely fair in the case of Apple. Certainly they don't need the money. Uh, They've got something, what, $180 billion in, in cash reserves at this point that that's that's not really a driving factor for them. So I think that, I think that the choices that were made in something like the pencil are are purely from a, an industrial design point of view and I don't know that I don't know that there's a good way to understand those design choices without actually sitting down and talking to to Johnny 
and saying, why did you guys design it like this? I suspect that there there is a reason why they chose to go that way. And I suspect there's a practical reason why they, they decided to go that way, whether it was from a an ease of uh, an ease of uh, manufacturing. I, I don't necessarily think that it's a perfect choice. I agree with you. I think there might be a way that you could do it with a removable battery. But again, I don't know in the, in a case of a of a product like the pencil, I don't know that that's necessarily enough of an important design decision to warrant it. For people who don't don't necessarily know about modern modern lithium ion batteries, they will, as you say, they will eventually die. They're they're going to die through use and even through in use. And a modern lithium ion battery is designed so that after, well, it's not designed this way, it's just the, the chemistry of it. After around 500 full cycle charges, you will be down to around 80% of its original capacity. If you're taking something like your iPhone and you're plugging it in every single night and charging it to 100%, after two years, you have gone through more than 500 cycle charges of the device. And that's one of the reasons why your battery life is not as good as it was when you first bought the device. The chemistry of that battery is changing as you continually recharge it. Uh, I think that there, there are ways that manufacturers could improve the way we do our battery cycling and, and our battery charging. But anyways, that's a, I think that's a bigger conversation. When it comes to, so when it comes to something like a phone, you have to expect that the user is going to charge it every single night like that and charge it to 100%. For something like the pencil, you get so much battery life out of a pencil. By the time that device is going through 500 full charges, I think that even the heaviest of Apple Pencil users are probably going to find that their device is is either no longer supported or is at the edge of where it's going to be supported from a software point of view and from new hardware on the on the um, the iPad itself. So I don't know that the battery is really something that's going to be a limitation of when you need to replace the Apple Pencil. I think that there are going to be many other factors involved in when you have to replace that device. And, and I don't think, unlike a, unlike a phone, let's say, where I know people that have phones that are three, four, five years old, and their battery life is a, is a significant factor for them. And, and certainly Apple could improve the, the uh, ease of replacing those batteries for sure. But I think in something like a pencil, I'm not sure that you'll find people replacing their pencil because the battery is no longer holding enough charge to be usable. You make a good point there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will concede on on that instance, uh, but I would still prefer to have seen it designed differently. And I would I agree too that Apple of any company is not as beholden to shareholders as as others. But what, what I think I was driving at more is that I get the sense that Tim Cook is driven more by profits and and margins and mm. that sort of thing than than Steve Jobs was. Um, and Steve Jobs put the the product first and foremost. Now, I'm not saying Steve Jobs necessarily would have made a different decision here or not and and no one will, none of us will will ever know. No, 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 of course not. I admire the thought and the care that is put into much of Apple's industrial design. And I'm particularly fond of products like their previous generation Mac Pro that did a superlative job of nailing both the aesthetics and the usability sure. while also making the act of servicing or upgrading them a genuine delight. And and while I've successfully upgraded or repaired some of the newer products that they've launched since then, I find the Apple Pencil situation is, is indicative of a, a more systemic problem that perhaps the tipping point came or like the, yeah, the tipping point came with the, those, the introduction of those pentalobe screws and that I find it's becoming increasingly difficult to repair or service Apple's products. And I mean, the company has been coming under an increasing amount of public scrutiny for things like the iPhone batteries and poor reliability coupled with the lack of repairability of the, the new MacBook 
keyboards and the fact that it costs nearly as much to fix a, a broken HomePod or AirPods as it does to buy them brand new. You know, something like the pentalobe screws, I don't really think that that's a big, people are make a big deal out of that. And, and honestly, I don't think that's a, it's a really big deal. Apple knew that designing a new screw was going to mean people out in the world were going to make new screwdrivers to to fit it. Anyone who has designed a security screw has seen a, a security screw bit out on the market within weeks, if not months, of of the of the screw coming out. So I don't think Apple was doing it to prevent anybody from getting into it. I, I mean, I fix it themselves. You know, their the his complaint about the the pentalobe screw was was quickly diminished in my mind by the fact that he just went out and created a screwdriver to get around it. And the reality is that it it's a, such a simple thing to to design to you know to sort of get around that problem that I I don't really see the pentalobe screw as a as a significant problem for people who actually want to fix it. I think what it does do is it prevents the average person from casually getting into their device and that I think is certainly something that's worthwhile. Just like I wouldn't, I don't think you would recommend the average person to casually open up their mechanical watch and poke around in it. I don't think it's worthwhile for the average person to go into their phone, for instance, or their, you know, or their pencil and, and start poking around in it. Because I think people would, people would not know how to go in there properly and would certainly damage it. And then complain that the device was now damaged and of course there would be some people who would say well apple why did you make it so easy for me to just you know damage and and destroy my expensive phone so it's you know i think there's a balance with all of this something like this the screws i don't think is a big deal again i think that's a reasonable balance to keep the average person out but to keep the the motivated person still getting getting access to it i think there are some things where they're gluing things together. For instance, I think the the situation right now where they they um, they glue the batteries to um, to the case of the phones, I think, is a bigger problem because it's very difficult to get those batteries out without actually destroying the battery, and in some cases, even destroying the case. So, I think that's a bigger problem. The I think if they if they kept the the access that they've got now where you have to know how to get into it, that's fine. If they made it a bit easier to replace that battery, that would be nicer. Uh, there's certainly things that, that could be done to uh, to improve that. But having said that, you know, you've got devices, they have, what did they say in the last uh, the last earnings report? I think they have, what was it, 1.3 billion devices in active use, iOS devices in active use right now. They're not producing that many devices a year. They're probably producing at most maybe 200 million devices a year, and I think that even that's generous. So they're, you know, you're talking about multiple years worth of devices still in use. So how, you know, how much need is there for that repairability versus how much use are the devices actually getting? I suspect if you took a look at other technology companies on the market, they are probably doing much better than the average company, and probably much better than most companies from that point of view. So. I don't know. They they make some effort to make sure that the OS is supported on old versions of their devices. Sometimes not perfectly, obviously, but uh, you know, talk to people who have Android devices and whether they can even get the latest OS, uh, even if the device is a year old. Right? It's it's difficult for them to to get updates. So uh, again, I I have a difficult time with this problem because I see it from both points of view. Where I I'm frustrated with the fact that I have an iPod Touch that's a couple years old and the battery is shot in it and it's not easy for me to replace the battery. But then at the same time, I have an iPad mini that I use in the shop and it's five years old at this point and it still runs the latest release of iOS. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's a difficult problem to solve and I don't think there's any any good answer to this because I think any choice they make people are going to have complaints about it and, and people are going to are going to rail against the decisions they've made. Yeah, I agree there's a, a balance to be had. I just find that things are, are trending more towards obsolescence and and disposability are than towards more sustainable 
technologies, which, which I find unfortunate. And certainly some things like the, like the, the keyboard on the MacBook Pro, uh, that's something where I don't, again, I don't think that that's necessarily a case of, for people who don't understand, who don't know what we're talking about with that, I should probably explain. The current generation of MacBook Pro has very, very low key travel on it. And people are complaining about the number of problems they're having with their keyboards when small amounts of, of dust and dirt are getting under those keys. So they're not very tolerant to to being dirty. And of course, anybody that's ever looked at their keyboard closely will know that keyboards do get pretty filthy, mostly because people eat around their computers. And I've certainly I've certainly experienced a bit of a problem with it. My B key sticks a little bit and uh, sometimes I get a double B when I'm typing. And so it's these keyboards are certainly not as as tolerant to that as uh, as others that they've created. But I don't know that that's necessarily because of a bad design decision driven by profitability or anything like that versus I suspect that it didn't get nearly as much testing as having a few million of these devices out in the world generates in the span of a couple of months. One of the problems when you're dealing with anything like this, and Apple I think is is going to be suffering from this for certainly worse than most people, most companies will, they're producing devices at a a scale that is unknown in human history. You know, you're you're releasing a new iPhone and in the first 3 months of sales there are 60 million of these devices being made and put out in the world. And certainly uh, there is no company that has produced a device as complex as that in that quantity in that short a period of time. And certainly not something that people use every single day, hundreds of times a day, and they're so intimately knowledgeable with. Same thing with a laptop. I mean, obviously, they're not producing laptops in those numbers, but Apple puts any device out in the market, and even a, a device that isn't doing well is still being produced in numbers that most companies, even most successful companies, look at and just can only dream of. And so I think that any any design flaw that they have first off people i think tend to to assume that the design flaw is there because of a decision and not just a mistake and they're going to these problems are going to come up because even 1% of 10 million laptops let's say is a significant number of laptops and so you you see these you see just a greater number of people complaining about these problems just because of the sheer quantity of them uh, out in the market. So I I don't know, even though I'm suffering from that particular problem right now, I suspect we're going to see that being fixed in the next generation of keyboards. And, you know, they're they're going to suffer from it because they are paying the, the replacement costs for all those devices, right? Those are still all those all those keyboards that they're that they're needing to replace are still under warranty. So this is a, a self-correcting problem in some ways, because Apple is going to, you know, especially if, if Tim Cook is that driven by the bottom line, he's going to look at it and go, if if the reason that we made the keyboards the way that we did was to save ourselves $10 a keyboard, well, we've just lost that because we've now spent that in in replacing keyboards that, that are, are malfunctioning. So I think that that kind of thing is going to be a self-correcting problem in, in some respects. Yeah, not making it feasible to repair a single key to me is a design decision uh the fact that you have to replace the entire keyboard when something goes wrong with a a single key i think you'll find that laptops have needed to have entire keyboards replaced for a lot longer than you suspect i've repaired keys on the previous gen macbook the reason i know that is because i've had to do full keyboard replacements on ibm laptops and this is going back 20 years ago so this isn't a new problem with with keyboards on laptops where entire keyboards needed to be replaced to 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 repair them. So this isn't exactly a new problem. Again, it's it's a problem because of the quantity of these that Apple is selling. You know, Apple has probably made more of these MacBook Pros, uh, the 13 and 15 inch MacBook Pros, in the last year and a half than uh, you know than IBM made ThinkPads in the first 20 years that they were making them. Right, like they are producing them in such large quantities 
you know, I suspect that they're producing a, a huge number of them. So it's and in a short period of time, and so people hear about them. Uh, so I don't, I don't know again that that's necessarily, you know, again the should should you be able to replace a single key? I don't know. I, I have I have an old I have the previous generation MacBook Pro in the shop. I bought it one used for from running my uh, my lathe in the shop, and that keyboard is miserable. I would give that keyboard up in a heartbeat. Even the individual, you know, fixable keys of that keyboard, I would give it up in a heartbeat for the new, the new keyboard because I think the new keyboard is superior in every other way than this, you know, this one flaw with it. So I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's a balance where they can keep the keyboard nearly identical to the way that it is now and make it so that it it's less susceptible to. Uh, you know, to flaw, you know, this, this one flaw. So I think you can get both. I don't think you need to, you need to abandon the design that it has right now just to fix that one problem. For more on this topic area, you listeners have not heard the the season finale of season three of Welcome to Macintosh. I would recommend going and, and checking that out. We'll put that in the show notes. And if you live in the United States and feel so inclined to advocate for more repairability in the products that you own, whether it's your phone or car, or if you're a farmer, a tractor, uh, repair.org, I uh, would recommend checking that out. As a designer of pens, if you had a blank canvas and could design an Apple pencil of your dreams, and it would be manufactured by the, the diligent hands at, at Foxconn, millions upon millions, for Apple. Uh, what would what would define your dream Apple pencil? Well, I think I think obviously this this is a bit of a loaded question because I'm I wouldn't design an Apple pencil the same way that I design my own pens. I think that I, this as a designer I would have to design it so that it matches Apple aesthetics to some degree. With that caveat, I think the first thing I would do is I would keep the, I would keep the white aesthetics of the the pencil. I have no problems with that. I think it looks good, and I think it matches with uh, with what they do. Although I would probably also make a black one, because there are a lot of people that like you know clean black products instead of clean white products. The first thing I would do is I would make a section where you're gripping the pencil. Uh, we'll put a, a photo of one of my pen sections in the uh, in the notes. And you'll see that when, when you're where you're gripping the pen, it curves down a little bit and then sweeps back up again, and it creates an area that is a comfortable size for your fingers to hold the pen, and it also creates an area to stop your fingers from moving around on the pen. So the angled shape, the the taper that's on it, that prevents your hand from pulling back up the pencil or the pen. And the little curve that's at the end that flares out prevents your fingers from pushing down. And so if you are putting too much pressure on it, your, your fingers aren't going to push down over the end of the, the pen. So having, having a, bit of a, a bit of a taper and then that, that flare out at the end of the pencil would make it a bit easier to hold it. You, you wouldn't, it wouldn't slip as much. The other thing you could possibly look into is using uh, in that that grip section, using some silicon in the the body of it instead of the the nice shiny plastic that they have that's very slippery. As your fingers get a little bit of of grease on them, they tend to slip quite a bit on the uh, that plastic. I don't I don't know that the that the silicon would be a good addition to it. Uh, you'd need to uh, get the material sciences people involved and and see if you could find a good product that would that you could put in there. But uh, I, I, that's that's another thing I would do. I, I think the last thing I would have to do with it is I would need to make it a little bit thicker in diameter and a bit shorter. Uh, having some length to it is important, and that allows control over it. But I think that you could chain, you could keep the volume of the pen the same, but change the outside dimensions by shrinking it a little bit and making it a little bit larger in diameter. I think that would improve the the comfort and the usability of it. You don't need to go to something like a like a toddler's crayon. You know, I don't think you need to go go that size. 
but obviously something a little bit larger would be uh, would be a bit more comfortable from that, from that point of view. How about for charging it? A lot of people complained about the the charging on it because it has a male lightning adapter on the back of it. And the reason for that is so that you can plug it into the bottom of your iPad and charge it. And it also allows, it's that's what allows you to pair it to a particular iPad is by plugging it into the bottom of it. And frankly, I really like this feature. I don't, I think I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've plugged it into a normal charger. Uh, there is a little adapter so that you can plug it into a normal lightning cable and charge it. But I, I almost never do that because the thing you'll find with that is it has such a small battery in it. And the battery is so efficient for the, the device that you can plug it in for five minutes to the bottom of your iPad and you can have hours worth of charge in there. And if you leave it plugged in for 20 minutes, you'll have a full charge on the pencil and you can go for days or weeks on, on that charge without any issue. So I don't have any problems with it from that point of view. I think the the thing that I would change, and this isn't actually related to the pencil itself, but related to one of their other products, which is their AirPods, their wireless headphones that they brought out last year, I guess a little more than a year ago, uh, that has a nice, beautiful little battery case that you put your your AirPods into, and they charge the 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 AirPods. And it has this nice female lightning port on the bottom of it that you can plug in a normal cable to and charge your uh, your AirPod case using. I would love to be able to take that AirPod case, plug my pencil into the bottom of it, and charge my pencil off that AirPod case. And unfortunately, it doesn't allow you to do that. I know the next version of the AirPod case is going to have wireless charging, just like the current generation of phones do. Frankly, I couldn't care less about wireless charging on my AirPod case. I charge it once a week or something like that. I don't need to charge it that often. And plugging a cable into the bottom of it doesn't bother me. But being able to plug my pencil into the bottom of that would be great. I would love to be able to do that. Uh, even if it meant that I sucked up a significant percentage of the the charge from my, my AirPod case, I would love to be able to do that. That's very, very clever. I hadn't thought about that. And I, frankly, hadn't tried that. Yeah, that would be a, a really nice feature uh, to be able to, to charge your pencil off the AirPod case. <laughs> that was the first thing I tried when I got an AirPod. When I got the AirPods was to try charging my pencil. And I was so frustrated when it didn't work. One thing I would have loved to have seen, and this seems more of a, a design choice that the Apple of the early 2000s may have made, not not so much the, the Apple of, of now, uh, but to have had a, a system similar to... Uh, a ballpoint pen where you, you twist it and the, the pen comes out the bottom and you twist it and it retracts back in. But to have a system like that for the the lightning charger rather than having that cap that can be so easily lost or, or misplaced. And I think that something that would take it even a level beyond that in terms of, of usability, although you'd have to sacrifice a, a little bit of space for for battery, but that could be compensated for by having a wider body, as, as you suggested, would be to have a system whereby if you, you twist it down far enough, you turn your male lightning connector into a, a female port by just twisting it and having it retract in that much farther into the pen body. I think that would be fantastic. I, I appreciate the, yeah, I appreciate the, the, the idea of trying to design something more elegant than the way that it's currently designed. I will say from experience with playing with twist mechanisms and pens and pencils and things like that, you, you complain now about the repairability of the pencil and it would, it would only get worse. The, the number of problems with those devices is, is just, it's ridiculous. And, you know, most people don't complain about it too much because they're in devices that are cheap and, and, and truly disposable. Uh, I, I think that I don't think that that would be a good choice here. So while I, yeah, part of me, part of me wishes that they were, it was a female connector on it, but I, in practice, I do like the, uh, I do like the male connector on it. And I will say one of the other advantages of the silicon sleeve that I use is that it, it sits over the back of that cap and it traps it in place and allows you to remove the cap without losing it because it stays in the silicon sleeve 
And so that is one of the other advantages of this particular sleeve that I have is that it does retain your cap. So when you're charging, you don't, you don't end up losing it. So anyway, it's certainly not a, certainly not a perfect device and, and they're, I'm curious to see where they end up going with it. I will never be entirely pleased with any design choices that anyone else makes. In fact, I'm rarely pleased with the design choices I make. So I'm never going to, never going to be happy with what someone else has designed and at the end of the day, I have to look at it and say, is this going to be something that I find usable or not? And, and is it something that I can I can use? And right now, the pencil is is reasonable. I'd say it's about 80% of where I want it to be. Honestly, the, the software is the biggest problem for me than over the hardware itself. Everything is a trade-off. Yeah, it is. And and speaking about that, a, a, lot of, a lot of what we've talked about tonight is about industrial design. And good industrial design is something that people don't notice. And when industrial design goes wrong people notice that there's something wrong with the device that they're using or the product that they're using. And a lot of people don't necessarily know why. A photograph, you can often look at a photograph and say, this photograph is horrible and these are the 10 reasons why this photograph is horrible. But when it comes to industrial design, people don't really, most people don't think about objects in in those terms. There are a few really good documentaries out there that I've seen over the years. Gary Hustwit. It has probably created the my favorite videos, my favorite documentaries about industrial design. Objectified is an excellent one where he interviews and talks to a number of industrial designers, including Johnny Ive, who does industrial design for, for Apple. In fact, it opens with, with uh, some comments from him. He speaks to probably the most influential industrial designer in history, and that's Dieter Rams, uh, who worked for Braun for many, many years, and is still an active industrial designer today. So I'd say that Dieter is is the is the most influential industrial designer. I would say that Johnny Ive, just because of the products that he's worked on and and their ubiquity now, is probably the second most important in terms of how they've shaped our world and how we design things. So the, those two are are people that he speaks to in, in Objectified and talks to quite a bit about what does it mean to design a product and, and how do you go about it? Uh, so it's worth, I think Objectified is worth going through and looking at. He's also done two other excellent documentaries, one on Helvetica, which is a, a font that was created, I don't even remember when it was created, sometime in the 20th century. Anyways, Helvetica is an excellent excellent documentary if you want to see what's involved in the design and then the explosion of the popularity of a font urbanized was talking about uh, design of of urban environments and he's actually working on a documentary specifically about Dieter Rams right now and I believe he's expecting that to be released later this year uh, there was a kickstarter last year to to fund that and that was that was something that I I was happy to kickstart because uh, I love the work that he does and having a, a full documentary about Dieter Rams is, is going to be uh, fabulous so if you're if you're interested in understanding more about how design choices are made and why why I I struggle with this balance in in my head it's difficult to to be too mad at a, at a designer because I know that there were compromises made mm-hmm. regardless of what they say you know in the in the PR material when Microsoft brought out their their Surface Pro tablets you know, they they said, oh, there were no compromises made when we designed this product. Like, well, no, there were. There were there were a lot of compromises made. And, you know, you're designing something that you want to be extremely light and extremely strong, and you chose to use aluminum. Well, if you were really concerned about it being very light and strong, you would have made it out of magnesium instead. But magnesium is significantly more expensive than aluminum, and it's more difficult to machine. So that's a compromise that you make in terms of, of cost and profitability and, and things like that. And and you see some people like uh, Nikon, for instance, or Canon, they make their camera bodies of their pro cameras out of a magnesium alloy. And the reason they do that is because they want it as light as possible and they want it as strong as possible. And if you make it out of aluminum, that's just not going to, it's not going to suffice. These these documentaries, listening to to industrial designers talk about about what they do, it's a good way of starting to understand some of these these compromises and choices that are made. 
when people are designing stuff and, and you start to get a better sense of just how designed the world is that are, that's around you. Another forthcoming documentary that Hustwit was involved in that I'm, I'm looking forward to catching is Designing Canada. I would also recommend uh, checking out for anyone who is interested is um, Dieter Rams's 10 Principles for Good Design. Just solid, distilled advice. The 10 commandments of design, if you will. His his ten principles of design is, as you say, it is the it is the ten commandments of good design and how to uh, how to design a product. And trying to hit all ten of them is challenging. It's but if you see a product that does meet all of these, it's probably a product that you've never noticed was designed. And that's that's the ultimate compliment for an industrial designer is somebody picking something up using it and not thinking about the fact that it was designed and that it works as well as it does if they if it if you don't think about it then the designer did it right thanks for listening to off hours you can find detailed show notes at offhours.show if you'd like to keep up to date with the show follow us on twitter at offhours John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>